This is the Short Fuse podcast, conversations around the visual arts, music, dance, literature, theater, and film. Short Fuse is produced by the Arts Fuse, the online journal that brings you commentary and criticism. We engage, we explore, we ask questions. Welcome. With the Oscars being presented just a few days from now, there was only one person I wanted to have a conversation with, Jesse Kornbluth. I knew it would be irreverent, insightful, and fun. A true cultural concierge, Jesse is the author or collaborator of 14 books and a dozen screenplays. His articles have appeared in the New York Times Magazine, Vanity Fair, and New York Magazine. He was editorial director of AOL when most of us were still figuring out the possibilities for the internet. And now he is our head butler, an online journal he founded in 2004, in his words, for people with more taste than time. He shares his favorite books, music, films, and products with us four days a week. My suggestion, pop a bowl of popcorn, pour Coke over a tall glass of ice, and join us. Oscars were first presented in 1929 at a private dinner hosted by Douglas Fairbanks, and that was about 25 years before the first movie theater opened. This year, 2021, is the 93rd awards ceremony. The world has shifted. It certainly won't be the awards ceremonies like the ones you covered in the 1990s. What was it like when conspicuous consumption and hubris ruled? When you were profiling actors and actresses and for short periods, even living in L.A., standing on the red carpet and attending the after parties. Well, I went to the Oscars once as Tina Brown's date. And it's a very different experience being there. Because there are lots of commercials and they go on for some time. And then many people clear out and there are placeholders, seat fillers who come and take your place in case you're not back. Why would you not be back? You would not be back because you're in the lobby cutting deals and schmoozing. Um, it's actually <laughs> exactly as boring a show as you imagine. Indeed, one year I was thanked on the Oscars by Jodie Foster when she won her Best Academy Award for uh, Silence of the Lambs. And by that time in the evening, my wife and I were asleep. You know, we woke up with a start to hear my voice on the television. So, uh, you know, the experience of, of the Oscars, as, as you know, is an experience of audience decline. The movies that win are often not seen by large numbers of people. It's not particularly a popular show. Uh, it's not particularly a show that appeals to a popular audience. So... Now that everything is different, that's not a bad thing. And uh, the Oscars this year have lined up a multicultural list of presenters, and it's going to be the most woke Oscar ever. Really, the first woke Oscar, perhaps. When we think about selection, what's the difference between curating films and giving awards? And, and how is this related to the state of film criticism? then and now? Well, this is a different year because for a great many people in uh, the white privileged bubble, uh, the year of shutdown was uh, an excuse, if you will, to sit on the couch and watch every streaming thing that came along. 
And then if you look at Facebook, as I do, you see that everyone turned into a film critic. And there were lively debates mm -hmm. about this and that. And I was not a participant in these things because my idea of, of spending time is not sitting on a couch streaming series. But I, I was really amazed the, the passion that people felt for these aesthetic choices that were extremely refined and completely irrelevant to what was happening outside in the world. This is a year in which, you know, this is probably the last year that they'll only be looking at films that are nominated. And in years to come, they'll be factoring in streams. There'll be films that only are streamed. What's interesting, of course, about this year is how carefully curated, if you will, the nominations are. Mm. They're very aware, which, and, and when we see the awards, that's what we're going to see as well. There are not gonna be, I don't think, many surprises. Since inequality is something we're grappling with, what are the advantages for those films that have the financial backing to mount aggressive promotional campaigns? How do members of the Academy sort through the noise? Do they tend to fall back on the familiar or lean too much to those movies that, mm, let us say, are different? I don't know about the Academy because I'm not a member. I am a member of the Writers Guild. This was fascinating to me. The only screeners I got, that is to say DVDs, were for black films. Invariably black films. Everything else was a link to stream. There were no big campaigns this year that I'm aware of. In fact, there are billboards now in Los Angeles that are hyping various films. It's gone back to a system that is archaic, is analog, and it's very much a one-off. All those, there, there are no celebrity lunches. There's no swag. There are only podcasts and occasional interviews. Very, very silent season for this. And so what will happen is these will be probably the least watched Academy Awards in history. And in part, that's because of the selection of films, which we can discuss. If we look back historically at the films that were awarded the Oscar for the Best Picture, there are a few that we're all familiar with, West Side Story, Gigi, Casablanca, On the Waterfront, Godfather. Then we think of films like The Shape of Water, Green Book, even Parasite. Can we connect the films to the culture of the moment, or why do they vary so widely? No, we can't connect the films to anything but the membership of the Academy. And these people tend to be older. They tend to be white. Many of them haven't worked in the industry for years and years. It's a totally unrepresentative group. For example, this year, Mank, film about Joe Mankiewicz, has got a lot of nominations. It's not going to win a thing. It's not. It has 10 nominations. Yeah, it, it'll, it'll win something minor, I think. I mean, I don't feel I'm going out on a limb here, but I don't mind if I am. The reason it's nominated is because these people remember Citizen Kane. They remember <laughs> They are nostalgic for it. I have a 19-year-old daughter. I was talking to her the other day. Here are two people she did not know of. 
did not know who they were. Leonard Cohn, Carrie Fisher, right? So what is her interest in Mank? And for her entire childhood, I'm a big fan of Turner Classics. She walks in the room, sees black and white, she walks out. And Eastman Color, which was big in the 70s, she's very sophisticated. I mean, she's a, she's a, a kind of filmmaker. She makes really great videos. She can see Eastman Color in, say, 70s and walk away, too. <laughs> now, uh, the point is, th this is a generational divide. So on one hand, you get the people who like Mank. And at the same hand, you get also the, uh, and then you get two other groups. The young people who are Turks and agitators and progressives and decent people, Democrats, let's call them, liberals. And then you get old people who want to be those people and who don't want to be thought of as old and over the hill. What you get is a mishmash. And if you look at it and try and read some sociological truth from it, I think you're not going to get anywhere that's very real. How will the Academy then change the reviewers and the system? Clearly, it needs to be changed. They, they should have a, a younger group of people. At my prep school graduation in the Pleistocene, <laughs> the speaker said, here's what you have to remember about the establishment. There's hope in death. These people will die. <laughs> will be replaced by other people. And that's how change occurs. People aren't going to stand outside the academy and agitate. Young people aren't going to agitate. People are busy. They're trying to get make careers at a terrible, terrible time. And it's hard, frankly, to care about anything other than what you're doing. There just isn't time. And also, you know, the pandemic changed our sense of time. As you know, for a lot of people, you wake up, you're going to do things, and suddenly it's four in the afternoon. Everything was faster and slower. And I don't know about you, Elizabeth, but a lot of the people I deal with have lost a step. We've gone from uh, COVID fatigue to COVID trauma. And I'm not clear that anyone's coming back from this soon. So I'm cutting everyone all the slack I can. But I'm also not hoping to get a quick answer on, on my projects. We're surrounded by video now. And you mentioned your daughter. It seems it's, it's part of our lives. I interviewed Neil Gorin of Catapult Opera. He produced a 17-minute opera for television and computer during the pandemic. The galleries at the New Museum and the Grief and Grievance exhibition are filled with sound in video. And there are links in the newspaper. What do you think this ultimately means for the movie experience? Enhanced? I think all that's really overrated, except for a very high esthetic audience. Here's where I come from. Bob Town, who wrote Chinatown and some other great movies, has said that a movie is five big scenes connected by other scenes. That's where I'm coming from, traditional storytelling. There's a great David Mamet memo. Your listeners could look it up on the web. It's a memo to the writers of a show called The Unit, which he produced. And he said, if you do what I tell you to, you can get rich and buy a house in Bel Air and hire someone to live in it for you. 
And this is what he told me. Scene one, someone wants something. Does he get it? No, he does not. Scene two, what does he do? He tries another way, right? That's just classic storytelling. It's like, and then what, and then what, and then what? And that's the kind of writing I try to do. It's what I believe in. So things that are very arty, I think, do these people have trust funds? What do their investors think? I mean, Mike Nichols said, yes, I'm an artist, but I'm a commercial artist. I'm a commercial artist too. And I believe in that. The films I like are the films that have me on the edge of my seat. And that doesn't mean Godzilla versus King Kong. I mean, things with people dealing with subjects that I care about. So that seems to be, you know, in criticism, a kind of narrow reactionary view, but it's what I came in on, and I'm afraid it's what I'm going to go out on. I mean, the, the real thing about these Academy Awards, I mean, can we talk about specific films here? Sure, absolutely. Please do. Let's talk about Nomadland. Nomadland is likely to win Best Picture. The director, female, Asian, almost certain to win Best Director. This film has just cleaned up along the way. How many people have seen Nomadland? You want to just hazard a guess, Elizabeth? I could not hazard a guess. Well, it's on Hulu, which does not release its viewership. And Hulu, of course, of the streaming services is the least desirable, right? It's Netflix. Netflix is the deal. Amazon Prime is the deal. Okay, Netflix in 1,000, in 1,200 theaters in opening week. How much do you think it grossed? $673,000. In four weeks, it grossed a million dollars. It means no one saw it. Worldwide, worldwide, this film has grossed $5 million. 2.2 of it in America. No one's seen it. But the buzz on it is fantastic. You can't escape the buzz. This is a life-changing movie. It changes the way we see these people. Our hearts go out to Frances McDormand and, and, and her friends who have nothing and yet they persevere. Let's talk about one scene. Rather early, she and one of her friends work in an Amazon warehouse. As they work, they smile to one another. How did they get permission to film in an Amazon warehouse? Frances McDormand wrote a letter. And uh, I assume this, this script was shown and Amazon approved it. Well, we know what working in an Amazon warehouse is like. It is the lowest level of hell. It is repetitive, robotic work. It hurts people. They're not able to go to the bathroom. They get short breaks. They burn out. They quit in large numbers. That's not even in the criticism of this movie, in the conversation about this movie. In other words, Nomadland, which is presented as almost as a documentary, as a reality-based movie, is in its own way, and at least this scene, as fictional and glossy as the glossiest Hollywood movie. There you go. I was wondering about that in our completely polarized country, whether films are being produced with an idea that they're for a red state or a blue state. I, I was thinking of Abby Disney's film, Armor of Light, which was her 
courageous look at trying to look at fractured political culture with the possibility that there people might be able to come together and and cross party lines to find common ground. In this case, it was gun laws. I think it's a footnote on a footnote. Film is a mass medium. The joy of film traditionally is you go into a room with strangers and have a communal experience. It's a temporary community, but but a, a deep one and a meaningful one, and one that I have always taken great pleasure in and gotten great value of. To see a film on a computer or on a TV screen at home alone, particularly a comedy, is there anything sadder than laughing alone? I can't think that America, anyway, is desperate to watch movies that have political content. I mean, Aaron Sorkin's movie about the Chicago 7 gets most of its press because people compare people in the streets then to people in the streets now. The analogy is what interests them. Not so much the film. Jerry Rubin, Abby Hoffman, do they care? I don't think so. And if they cared, they might care about historical accuracy, which is about the last thing Aaron Sorkin is interested in. I mean, as A.O. Scott wrote in the Times, Sorkin is about showmanship in the service of high civic purpose. In other words, his entire appeal really is to privilege white audiences. If we say the word monuments, just saying that word conjures up images of privilege, whiteness, and inequality. Isn't the Oscar a monument? Do people still feel comfortable having this gold statue on their mantles? I've written my Oscar speech. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it may be worthless, but I'll take it. I'm not going to dump on it uh, just because I'm not getting it. I'm not going to look at the people get it and say, oh, I could have done better. Why didn't they make my movie? That's silliness. Traditionally, what the Oscar means is money. One, the film has played in the previous year, really, and now it can be revived briefly. Now it can be sold in more, in more media, right? And now the people who made it, their price goes up. That's the thing about Los Angeles. You have a price. Your price is what you got for the last movie you made. Did it do well? Your price goes up. Did it not do well? Your price can go down. It's like the stock market. So once you strip away all the sentiment and the cheering and people having their favorites, it's a business. It's a business event. Increasingly, it's an unimportant business event. And that's the problem. The problem is then the problem for the creators. And that's why streaming is so important and why films go straight to streaming and why these companies, big companies, are releasing films straight to streaming. Yes, theaters are going to open up, but do you really expect people in large numbers are going to go to theaters? I mean, will you? I will go to the theater. I will go to small theaters like the Angelica or Film Forum to see a film that I want to see. I will too, but not immediately. Can you share with us some of either the streaming films or programming that you found exceptional over the last year or that perhaps helped you through the pandemic, shall we say? 
No, uh, no. Uh, my work helped me through the pandemic. People helped me through the pandemic. Films do not. I didn't look to them to do that. It was, uh, and if I did, I was watching Turner Classics on, you know, on a weekend. There are two film. There are two things I'd like to talk about. The Father, which is so transcendently the best film I saw this year, and uh, Olivia Colman, the greatest performance, better even than she was in The Crown. Anthony Hopkins, my God, the man's 89 years old. He's playing a man named Anthony, and it's about a guy with dementia who's losing it. I don't want to give away the spoiler, but the last scene of that movie is one of the greatest pieces of acting I've ever seen. And it was great, as he says, because I wasn't even acting. I could see myself in that moment. And it's just, it's just shattering, shattering. And I urge everyone to go to Amazon Prime and stream The Father, because it's a, a quality film experience. And it's a film experience. That's the other thing. It's not tricked up in any way, it's told a little bit out of sequence because you're seeing things from his point of view and you're not sure what reality is. It's beautifully done. Do you think he'll win the best actor? No, because a black actor died. I mean, he should win at a level playing field, but Chadwick Boseman is, going, is probably going to win because that's the sentimental choice, right? I'd like to talk about Queen's Gambit for a bit. Mm-hmm. Queen's Gambit is very personal to me. Because in 1983, when the book came out, I optioned the book to make a feature film. And I wrote the screenplay. Arguably the best screenplay I've written. Maybe not. But it was desperately good. And my rabbi was David Brown, who produced The Jaws of the Sting and Bush Cassidy and a million other things. And he would say, okay, just perfect the script. And I'd do it again and again and again. And finally said, okay. So I felt good about myself and everyone wanted to do it and then everyone didn't want to do it and I couldn't afford the option and I let the option lapse and these two guys swept in. Walter Tevis had died. His widow sold the rights outright for half a million dollars. Forty years later, they get it made. Now, what is the Queen's Gambit about? It's about a girl, genius, orphan chess player. She's not particularly beautiful. She's not particularly sociable. She's going to have drug and alcohol problems. She is alone, but she has one talent. She is the Mozart of chess. And the arc of the film, rather the arc of the book, which was the arc of my script, is nobody gets anywhere alone. We all stand on other people's shoulders. We all have people helping us. And until Beth can accept being helped and accept being loved, She's lost. So you don't have to like chess to love this movie the way I wrote it, right? Because all you have to do is connect with your own feelings of all the difficulties you've had in your life and how you wish you were more accepted and wish you were less of an outsider or that's not your story, but you have compassion. You know someone like this. And it's a success story because someone came from nowhere to somewhere and she beat the Russian, the big boy off, the big Russian right? Cut now to Queen's Gambit as we saw it. She's beautiful. She is beautiful. She's very beautiful. She's a fashion plate, right? In every way, she's a winner. What's the problem? What's the dramatic problem? What does she have to overcome? This was Netflix's most watched scripted miniseries, 62 million households. 
It eventually ranked third in a yearly ranking of Netflix shows. It started a chess craze. Chess book sales increased over 600%, several million new users, and a high rate of registrations by female players. It did everything you, that this, every success, every metric of success was scored. And God bless it. I'm not saying, oh, they took my baby and hurt her. What I'm saying is, maybe if I'd been more clever, maybe if I'd done what they did and made her more attractive instead of making her, I mean, I used to say the movie was Rocky for smart people. Yeah, well, maybe it's better to make Rocky. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe it's better if Rocky's really handsome. The point is, even when we're looking at something that looks like reality, it's massaged. And the only film that isn't this is a film called Time, which I've seen a little of, which has been nominated as the best documentary. It is raw, it's home movies, painful to watch, emotional. It made Bill Gates cry. And will it win? I don't know. I was pretty taken by the octopus movie, too. But this is a documentary. It doesn't, documentaries don't matter. They're very low on the food chain. I mostly have been curled up in a chair reading. Are there other films that you would like to talk about, Jesse, that are important or have something to say about them? I'm probably the last person to laugh that. I mean, I'm, I'm collaborating on a book with someone. I'm finishing a novel. Like you, I've been reading. I mean, I am the single last person in the world to discover Shit's Creek, which I started watching about two weeks ago. And I'm halfway through the first season, and now I sort of see through it, and I'm thinking, I don't know if I can see three, se- three seasons of this. The Crown. The Crown was just unbelievably well done, and it cost a fortune to do, and it was brilliantly written. And Olivia Coleman, who is in The Father, was wonderful in it. I felt I was seeing something that had a lot of dimension. There are lots of things that are just thrown up as popcorn movies, and, and that's fine. But those aren't movies that are... You know, I'm, I'm in my own bubble. Mm-hmm. It only looks like the white privilege bubble. It's more like the white snob bubble. <laughs> I like things that are actually good. I like books that when you are reading them, you can't put them down and you have to read them on the street. That's, that, that's the level of engagement I'm, I like. And in my own work, it's what I try and produce. And I think people are starved for that. I was amazed at the number of people, the number of friends who were watching their television, their computer, every streaming something every evening. I, I couldn't possibly do that. It's nice to take a break and read. Well, I think streaming became the new sex. <laughs> no matter who you were with, the, just sitting on that couch and <laughs> those moments of intimacy, watching something, I don't, it eluded me, but, 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 it, but, it, but it worked for millions. In reality, don't we watch the Oscars to see what people are wearing? Apparently, the producers sent out a note this year and encouraged people to wear formal clothing that aims for, quote, a fusion of inspirational and aspirational. I thought, are they going to be, is it going to be Amanda Gorman's yellow Prada or Kamala Harris's sneakers, creative masks? What do you think the fashion will be? What will people wear? Because they are going to have an in-person awards ceremony. Well, hey, God, do I miss Joan Rivers or what? (laughs) Because a little tone is very useful here. That note they sent out, 
I don't know. It needs to be translated back into English. I don't know what these words mean. I, what does aspirational club mean? I mean, why don't they just say intersectional and get to and get, <laughs> do it? <laughs> I mean, I don't know. This is the year in which I bought a Uniqlo vest and wore things that look like sweatpants. Elizabeth, we've known each other a long time. Can you imagine? I mean, <laughs> I, mean I wear striped Oxford shirts, Brooks Brothers sweaters, and khakis, and I have since 1963. I never <laughs> thought it would change, but now when I go out to walk my six or 8,000 steps a day, <laughs> I go, I'm like every other jabonian <laughs> out there. You know, they have to do something that looks like entertainment. I mean, it's not entertaining if there's, like, there has to be a red carpet, a virtual red carpet. Is that a contradiction in terms or what? Thank you for your observations, Jesse, and your thoughts. Can you share with us what you are working on? Is there a book that we'll see soon or a screenplay or where can we find you? Just as the pandemic hit, my novel, JFK and Mary Meyer, came out and it was you know on its way to something and done. Two reviews in the New York Times, both good, you know, they were good, done. Uh, I had written a play about Matisse, which Al Pacino's manager says he will be in and he'd do it streaming. Is that happening? Not that I recall. I'm now finishing a novel, which I cannot say what it is, but you know, the secret of what I do is how many platforms can a material dance on, right? So mine is a novel. It could be a YA novel too, good, because it, it's, uh, it's about a young person, let's just say that. It can be a play, it can be a movie. How many ways can I get paid for this? But I'm not thinking about that as I write it. I'm thinking about that as I chose the material. Because every writer who's anybody has a, a number of ideas. And this one, from the title to the concept to how I saw it, would work. And will work, I think. And what did I read in the pandemic? I reread lots of stuff, but I certainly read all of James M. Cain again. The Postman Always Rings Twice. Ah. Uh. I rewatched that movie recently. So here's the point. Those novels were 142 pages long. All story. Why did I love Walter Tevis? Because Tevis, who wrote The Color of Money, The Hustler, The Man Who Fell to Earth, and his masterpiece, Queen's Gambit, didn't have a style. You read this book and it's all story. It's like there's no writing. It's what Orwell called prose like a window pane. That's my ideal. It's not literary fiction. It's not the sort of thing that gets written about in The New Yorker. But I like to think that I can sell it for actual money and that actual readers will like it and that it will have a life beyond the two-week window of my publicist's attention. If you can make things, it's better to make things. I was one of the lucky ones. In the pandemic, I had work. I had work to do. That is a saving grace because work gives you purpose. And if you don't have purpose, this was a really depressing time as opposed to merely a tragic time. <laughs> so purpose softened it. Purpose narrowed your focus. I think it was three weeks into the pandemic when I just got up one morning and thought, this is the new world. 
I can't, I can't focus on this. And I, like you, have been very busy and have been writing and working on stories and setting things up because this is, this is our life. It's with everything going on, it's going to be, there's going to be disruptions. This just happened to be a very large disruption. There's a moment in my novel when the young man who was uh, a younger man when the pandemic struck, because the book is set in the now, but the now is like 2022, 2023, whenever the book comes out. An interviewer says, so what do you remember the pandemic? He said, mostly um, rain and sirens. And she says, really, sirens and rain. And he says, no, mostly the rain. Because if you remember back to February and March, which no one can, I can barely, it rained all the time here. It was just the bleakest. And, uh, but the point is no one can remember. It's can't, you can't remember barely next week. I, the last week, if I don't take my calendar out, I don't know what I did then and what I'm supposed to do now. And the idea that we're going to go back to anything, you know, good luck to that. So, yes, you and I were the lucky ones because we had things to do in our heads that were not about watching the news, reading about Trump, and streaming movies. <laughs> well, thank you, Jesse. It was a very interesting interview. Thank you. Thank you, Elizabeth. You're very kind to ask me. enjoyed our conversation, please subscribe. You can connect with us through the short fuse podcast at gmail.com. You can support us through Patreon. You can find us on Spotify and on Apple or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Join us next time when we engage, explore, and ask questions. 